Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather today. Thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the family that we have here, the unity that we have because of what Christ has done for us, the unity that we have with one another. Um, Lord, it is, it's uh, something that we cannot even question. It's, it's accomplished because your work on the cross finished it all. Uh, it, it united us, not only to yourself, but to your people. And Lord, as we come to your word, once again, we thank you for it. And today, Lord, we are reminded that your word deals with a wide spectrum of human emotions. And we confess to you that we have experienced the wildest spectrum of emotions ourselves. And so we pray that your word today would do your work, that it would instruct us, that it would even reprove us or discipline us if necessary, but that it would also assure us and teach us how to find peace in the midst of life's fiercest storms, that Christ would be glorified through every circumstance in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 13. And this is one of those Psalms that will remind you that the Bible doesn't pull any punches, uh, that it deals with things head on, uh, that there's nothing that the Bible tries to uh, sweep under the carpet or, or pretend doesn't actually happen in the human experience. So this is actually a psalm that is deeply personal to me. It's a psalm that I have come to love. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one since we started our study in the Psalms, and I kept thinking about skipping forward and skipping forward, but uh, I, I decided, well, I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to have an order here, and, and this one will come, and maybe the circumstances in my life will change before we get to it, and so I'll be able to preach it kind of from a different angle. But no, this, this is a, a psalm that is personal to me. It's one that I think I should probably memorize verbatim. It's a psalm that I can just, I can just relate to, connect with on a really deep level. And it's a psalm that as Christina was hospitalized for several weeks Two years ago, it was a psalm that brought great comfort to her. So today we're looking at Psalm 13, and it's yet another psalm that was written by David, and it deals, <coughs> excuse me, it deals with the reality of feeling despair. It deals with the feeling that God has forgotten us, or worse than that, that he has completely abandoned us in a time when we feel like we need him most, when we need to sense his presence the most. And I think that this is something that almost every Christian, if not every Christian, can relate to on some level. And yet at the same time, it's something that you'll probably find very, very, very few Christians willing to openly admit. Uh, we've been taught that we're supposed to be living in the victory that Christ has won for us. And in a sense, that is absolutely true. Uh, but we've got various uh, books out there. We've got various Christian counselors out there who will tell you that if you're feeling anxiety or if you're feeling depression, you are in sin. And I'm here to say that is an outright lie. We know that it's a lie because Jesus himself was referred to as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. It can have something to do with sin. It absolutely can have something to do with sin. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it has nothing to do with sin. It can. In fact, it might. But it's not necessarily sinful to feel despair. It's not necessarily sinful to feel depressed or to feel anxious if you know what it's like to feel like you have been abandoned by God, like God isn't listening to your prayers, like they're just, you may as well just be talking to a wall. If you know what it's like to be filled with sorrow, filled with grief, then you stand not only with the Lord Jesus himself, but you stand with David as well. He was filled with sorrow and grief, and Jesus was filled with sorrow and grief you don't need to just learn to play the role, to, to wear the facade like everything's peachy, everything's great, nothing's going wrong. You don't need to keep up appearances and keep your thoughts and keep your doubts and keep your questions to yourself. There is a way through it that involves being brutally honest with yourself. 
It may actually shock you to learn that Charles Spurgeon, who's arguably the greatest preacher since, since the Lord uh, walked the earth, even Charles Spurgeon dealt with deep, deep bouts of depression. He once openly confessed to his congregation saying, quote, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to, end quote. We're talking about a very godly man there. And you know, as Christina's health has fluctuated and faltered for the last two and a half years with no real end in sight, I too have dealt with really deep bouts of depression, times when it feels like, you know, Lord, it would just be easier if if you just get me out of here, just take me home. It would be easier to just die and be done with it than to continue on down this road. And so today, as we cover this psalm, which instructs us on dealing with these kinds of feelings, uh, I stand before you preaching first and foremost to myself as a man who has learned how to find my comfort in the Lord through this all, but also as a man who needs to be reminded a million times, I'm telling you, a million times, over and over, how to respond to and how to recover from the feelings of abandonment and desperation and to once again find hope and peace and comfort in the Lord. And that's the point of this entire psalm. The point is this. We find our hope, we find our comfort in remembering who God is and what he has promised. We find our hope and comfort in remembering who God is and what he's promised. So it's refreshing to know, or to be reminded, if you didn't already know, from the outset that David experienced all the same thoughts, all the same feelings, all the same emotions that you and I feel. He was a man who experienced the deepest imaginable bouts of depression, the highest uh, bouts of anxiety, and yet he was worthy of the title, a man after God's own heart. So this psalm, actually if you look down at it in your Bible, it has a very interesting structure. Look at your Bibles for a second and you'll note that in verses 1 and 2, that's where David expresses his, uh, his depression, his, his struggle, uh, and asks his questions. You see there, between verses 1 and 2, there are actually five lines. Okay, Then look at verses 3 and 4. This is where David prays to the Lord, and there are four lines. And in the final section, verses 5 and 6, where David concludes this psalm with a restored sense of confidence and, and trust and faith in the Lord, uh, there are three lines. So five, four, three, as you go through the stanzas. One commentator notes this. He says, quote, This song, as it were, casts up constantly lessening waves until it becomes still as the sea when smooth as a mirror, and the only motion discernible at last is that of the joyous ripple, joyous ripple of calm repose, end quote. So let's look at the first couple of verses here in Psalm 13 where we see David expressing his struggle, his depression, his feelings of abandonment. We're looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So once again, from the outset, we're reminded that uh, the psalms are intended to be sung. Uh, it, it immediately says, for the choir director, uh, a psalm of David. Uh, but at this point, it kind of feels like I'm beating a dead horse uh, because we started every psalm that we've looked at with this reminder that these are meant to be sung. These are meant to be sung by God's people. It's a reminder for us. It's part of the inspired text, that reminder is. So we, we sing psalms here every week, uh, and we do it as uh, not only because it's, uh, it's the word of God that we're singing, but we also do it as a matter of obedience, knowing that God has actually specifically instructed us to sing psalms, uh, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, as we sing this song uh, to, the, uh, to the tune of, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus this morning, you know, I, it just resonates with me when I sing a psalm. 
And this was another one that just, it just brings out something in my heart that regular songs don't. Uh, and it's just one of those things that, that's why, that's why we keep the psalms in the rotation. Uh, because it, it does reverberate with us, it does, uh, we do identify with it, but also God has instructed us to do it. But it's interesting to note, as we look at this, that there is a bit of continuity between the previous psalm, between Psalm 12 and this psalm. If you remember back in Psalm 12, David felt abandoned. He, he felt alone, uh, but he, he wasn't alone because God had forsaken him. He was abandoned. He was feeling abandoned because he couldn't find any faithful men around him. He said, help, O Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And that's a horrible feeling when you feel like your fellow man, like all of your fellow men, have left, have just abandoned you. But how much worse is it when you feel that way about God? So what we're immediately confronted with as this psalm gets underway is David's heartfelt cries of depression, of desperation, of feeling horrible, feeling abandoned, feeling forgotten. So we should note that David actually repeats the same question over and over, a total of four times. How long? And when there's repetition in the text, it's remember, it's like a way of, of underlining it, or it's a way of putting it in bold font or something like that in our cultural context. It's, it's asking the same thing over and over so that you get the gist this is something that's very important. How long, he asks four times. And from his finite perspective, which is the same kind of perspective that you and I have, by the way, we have a very finite perspective. From his perspective, sometimes suffering and trials seem to endure much longer than necessary, don't they? We all know it, don't we? Don't they sometimes last way longer than we think they should or longer than they actually need to? I mean, we're a church body here that firmly believes Romans 8.28, that God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We believe that. We believe, we, we have an understanding of the fact that God in his sovereign goodness actually uses trials and hardships and, and difficult, desperate situations and circumstances not to crush us and break us because he hates us, but to actually purge us of sin and to purge us and break us away from our iniquity, to refine us and to grow us in the likeness of Christ. But it's possible, it's possible to get to the point where it feels like overkill. It feels like you reach the point where you just want to say, enough already, enough, you know, whatever I'm supposed to have learned through this, I've learned it by now, haven't I? Because the thing is, it's easy to endure a short trial. You know, a couple of years ago when Christina was in the hospital, uh, a total of uh, three times, um, it's, it seemed like a long time, but looking back now, that was pretty quick compared to the last two and a half years. <laughs> and at the time, it was like, okay, wow, we made it through this trial. This is, this is over and, and done with, you know. And, and that's the way we, all, they, we, we tend to think. We tend to look for the end. We tend to look for the light at the end of the tunnel because it's easy to endure a short trial. If something goes wrong, but the end is in sight before too long, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, I can trust the Lord with this. I can trust the Lord to get me through this because I can actually see the finish line. It's, it's not that far away. I can make it. And so we stand strong and we trust in the Lord and we grow in faith and we grow in confidence as He delivers us through that trial. We testify of his goodness. We testify of his grace and his faithfulness in retrospect to, to carry us through that short-lived trial. But trials can get to the point where they feel absolutely unbearable. When there's no end in sight. There's no light, the proverbial light that we can see at the end of the, of the tunnel. At that point, it, it's easy to start losing hope, to start questioning the confidence that we once had in God, and to actually reach a point of depression when the trial only seems to be getting more and more and more severe, and there's, there's, there's no finish line that you can set your eyes on 
right in front of you. In other words, the marathon is a greater test of our faith than the 40-yard dash. The marathon is much more difficult than the 40-yard dash when you're talking about trials. And to add to David's frustration, he, he actually isn't even sure exactly what this is all connected to. What's this, what's this all about? We don't see him confessing sin. We don't see him repenting of sin in this psalm. There's no expression of guilt uh, the, that he's buried, which needs to be dug up and, and dealt with. You know, we like to think in terms of causes and effects, don't we? I mean, that's part of being human, I think. Um, at least that's how my brain thinks. I'm always looking for causes and effects. And David was no different. And part of his agony here, part of his depression, seems to stem from the fact that this doesn't make any sense to him. It doesn't seem to have any correlation. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with any act of unfaithfulness on his part. Now again, sin can and does lead to a person feeling distant from God or feeling separated from God. Uh, that makes sense. When, when, when there's a sin in our lives and, and we've kind of turned our backs on God and, and we're, we're focused on this sin, we're not going to church anymore, we're not praying as much as we used to anymore, we're not reading our Bible as much as we used to anymore, then we can make sense of a trial. Okay, God's trying to bring me back. But it's confusing and it's frustrating when we see the effect, feeling distant from God, but we can't find or figure out the cause. So why is David feeling so abandoned by God? Why is he feeling so rejected by God? Well, it seems that the most glaringly obvious answer for why he's feeling like this is that this is not a short trial or a short hardship. It's something that feels like it has lasted much longer than necessary. And so David repeatedly asks, how long as if to say, God, I am waiting, I'm waiting, but I'm, I'm running out of patience and I'm, run, I'm running out of endurance. So why, what is he, what's he feeling? Look at his questions. What is he feeling as he writes this? He says, first, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, from David's perspective, which again is our perspective, which is a finite perspective, it feels like God has been silent for far too long. It feels like God has been absent or inactive for far too long. David was feeling and wondering the same things that you and I feel and begin to wonder when a hardship persists, while it feels like God isn't stepping in to do something that it seems to us he should be doing. And when this happens, it's easy for us to start thinking that God must not be as mindful of us as we once thought. Or, or maybe, you know, he, he doesn't care about us quite as much on a, on a personal level as, as much as we once thought. It's as though God has forgotten us. It's as though God is neglecting us. And so we start wondering, you know, what could God possibly be hoping to accomplish by not doing something about this situation? By, by allowing this to just carry on and on and on and on like this. Now here's the thing, friends. You and I, we know on one level. We know up here. We know intellectually what God has promised, right? We know in our minds that God has promised to never forget us. We know that he's promised in his word, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. We know that, don't we? His word says it. We know that his word says it. We know it intellectually. We know in our, in our minds that Jesus said, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age, right? We, we know these things up here. So what's the problem? The problem is the disconnect between our hearts and our minds. The problem is that our hearts struggle with doubt. And the problem is that our feelings so often lie to us. And our feelings so often mislead us. You know, the world gives us really stupid slogans like, follow your heart. Which is, is not only stupid, it is actually the most wicked advice, it's the most evil advice you can give to someone ever because our hearts are desperately wicked. When we feel like we've been abandoned 
by God as orphans. And God's Word tells us the very opposite. We're confronted with the truth about our hearts. And that is that they lie to us. That they are desperately wicked. That they would defy and contradict what God Himself tells us in His Word. See, it's not the most painful trials that test our faith in God. It's the most lengthy ones that do. We're in danger of losing confidence, of losing faith in God in both, but a quick trial is really easy to recover from. The longer, slower ones are the ones that test our endurance and are the greater threat. After two and a half years of Christina's suffering, enduring just debilitating chronic pain and and radical changes in terms of what she's capable of doing and what she's capable of eating. I have to confess to you guys that there are days that I have plenty of days in which I feel like this, in which I know that God is with us. I know that God says He's for us, but I feel like God has just forgotten us. Have you been there? It is a horrible place to be. It is a dark place to be. It quickly leads to actually the second step, looking at the next question that David asks. The next step is feeling as though God has not only forgotten us, but that he has intentionally withdrawn his blessings from us. The next question is, how long will you hide your face from me? That's his next question. Now, you may have noticed I would hope that you have, that every week we end the service with what's called a benediction. Uh, For us, we use what's uh, called the Aaronic, um, from Aaron, the Aaronic blessing. That is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the idea of that second stanza is that when God is blessing us, when God is being gracious unto us, when he's pouring out his grace and his blessings upon us, his face is actually toward us and shining on us, metaphorically speaking. So conversely, to think that God is hiding his face from us, this is a step beyond just forgetting. This is neglecting. This is an indication of withdrawing blessing, withdrawing favor, and being under the curse of God. See, to forget somebody is, is passive. You don't say, well, I'm going to forget all about somebody, and you remind yourself every day, I'm forgetting about, it doesn't work. It's passive. It's not something that you can be active about. You can't actively forget. It's passive. In other words, it's not intentional when you forget somebody. In fact, it's, it's, it's probably not intentional. Uh, but, but to hide your face from someone, that's active. It's deliberate. And what a horrible, horrible thing to feel this way about God. And yet, aren't we prone to feel like this and to think like this sometimes? We all are. David was. We think in terms, of, again, we think in terms of cause and effect. So isn't there a temptation when when things not only go wrong, but when they keep going wrong, to think that maybe God has intentionally withdrawn his blessing from us. Your marriage starts filling up with hardships, and your spouse seems to be preoccupied with fill-in-the-blank work, friends, hobbies, whatever, something else. And so the joy that once filled your marriage feels like a distant memory and you wonder, God, aren't you blessing my marriage anymore? The church goes through a season of of rapid growth, steady growth, and then it levels off. And as it levels off, some people move away. Some people decide to go to a new church. Is it because God is no longer blessing the work of the church? You know, I've actually had conversations with fellow pastors who do think this way. You know, if, if their church is growing, what do they say? God's blessing our ministry. As if, if you're, if you're not growing, God's not blessing it, right? When a few families leave, they, they call that a season of pruning. Actually, a season of pruning can be a blessing. I mean, if it's something that God is, is doing, it, you know, he has some purpose in it. 
which is always going to involve his glory and the good of his people. So this is just a very dangerous, dangerous way to think. Because it's a short trip from this second question where you feel like God has withdrawn his blessing, that he's hiding his face from us. It's a short trip from that point to the third step, which is seeking counsel from ourselves. Look what David says next. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? See, when we feel like God has withdrawn his blessings, we're very close to being in a a very dark place, a morbidly dark place where we just start ruminating on failures and we're propelled and directed not by the word of God, but by our feelings and by our emotions. And these things have just been building up like a tsunami wave. And things which are, are constantly prone to mislead us. We listen to them, our hearts, our feelings. And this is where a person really gets stuck in a spiritual rut, so to speak. We lose sight of the joy of salvation at this point, and we start looking for happiness within ourselves. We start looking for comfort and peace within ourselves. We've taken our eyes off of the Lord, and now we're just looking at me. It's at this point that you might look back to a sin that once gave you a fleeting sense of happiness and you're tempted to return to it the same way that a dog returns to its vomit. But if you do give in to that temptation at this point, what you realize, what you will realize is that it doesn't give you the joy or the satisfaction or the contentment or the peace that you thought it was going to give you because you don't love it the way that you did before because you're a new creation in Christ. You have a new heart with new desires and new affections that won't allow you to find prolonged joy in whatever that sin is. What a blessing that is, by the way. You hate the way that that sin used to own you the way that you used to be a slave to that sin. You can't find joy in it anymore. And so finally, you've taken counsel in yourself and that leads you to the final step where you wonder how long your enemy will triumph over you. Now, who's the enemy that David's referring to here? I mean, the Bible really lays out several enemies that we have. I mean, the truth is we're our own worst enemy. Uh, because of the wickedness of our hearts. We're our own worst enemy. That's the flesh nature. But the Bible also describes Satan as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's the enemy of our souls. And of course, death is another great enemy. When we find ourselves in this dark and morbid place where we're seeking counsel in ourselves, it feels like death has swallowed us. So which enemy is this referring to? It could refer to any one of those things. But David, the point is that David felt helpless. He felt hopeless. And there may have been times, there may be times, and there may be times to come where you feel like this too. And there may be times when you even get to this this final step where you're, you're just in a morbidly dark place. But the question is, how do we get out of it? How do we break free from it? How do we get out of this emotional and and spiritual rut and rediscover the sense of God's presence in our lives? As I've said so many times through this study of the book of Psalms, while our situation may not be exactly what David's situation was, our solution is the same that he had. So it's helpful to go through those questions that he's asking because as we go through those questions, we see ourselves in there, don't we? We see how it connects to us, how it relates to us. But ultimately, friends, ultimately we must move beyond that. We must move beyond seeing ourselves in the text and figure out how do we move from the darkness of the valley to the light of God's presence. We find the answer to that in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. The psalmist writes, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. So at this point, David's 
heart, David's feelings, are telling him one thing. But what we must see here is that David ignores them. He has to turn away from whatever his feelings and emotions are telling him. He can't believe them. He can't follow them. So instead of following his own heart, he defies his heart. He works against his heart, and he does what we must do when we feel like that. And that is pray. Come to the Lord in prayer. Instead of allowing his feelings to to mislead him down this path, down these steps, he turns to God in faith and he pleads with God to remember him, to, to consider him. That's what that means. And to answer him and to restore unto him the sense of God's faithful presence. Now this is not to say, by the way, I should add, this is not to say that there's not a time and place for seeking professional help. Uh, Severe bouts of depression may absolutely warrant seeking help from a counselor or maybe even a medical professional uh, if it's severe enough. All I'm saying is that at some point, you have to stop looking at yourself. You have to stop dwelling in the darkness and you must stop listening to your feelings and your emotions and instead make every effort to turn back to the Lord in prayer. And we must intentionally intentionally, deliberately bring our feelings to the Lord in urgency, in faithful and earnest prayer. And we must pray because this is always where the tide begins to turn. When we consciously, intentionally, deliberately decide to stop listening to our hearts and to stop being led by our feelings and to act instead in faith believing that God hears and responds to your prayers? Is it possible that God allowed you for a time to feel abandoned because your prayer life was so sparse and so shallow, because you've been so busy at work, or you've been so distracted by this or that? Of course that's possible. If your prayer life needs to grow deeper, If you need to learn to rely more on prayer, more on the Lord, and less on yourself, if you need to spend more time in fellowship with the Lord in prayer than you spend playing video games or doing something else that's hindering your walk with the Lord, then then yes, if God is causing all things to work for your good, then it may very well be that this was his purpose for God allowing you to reach the point where you feel abandoned. But this is how we turn the corner with spiritual depression, friends. We take our eyes off of ourselves. We turn our ears away from our hearts, our feelings, and instead, we pray. We exercise faith by praying. Note that David affirms that Yahweh is still his God. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He's saying, please listen to me because I still am your child. I still belong to you. I still rely on your grace and your provision in my life. What would cause what he's afraid of? What, what would, he, he says, my enemy, uh, my enemy will say I've overcome him and my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaking. What would cause him to worry about that happening? Apparently, it's connected to God enlightening his eyes, lifting his eyes from the darkness and from the morbidity that he's stuck in, the rut, the emotional rut that he's stuck in. So David is saying here, God, your character is actually on the line here. What part of God's character? What would cause God's adversaries, God's enemy, to rejoice over the death of one of his children? His lack of faithfulness. So it's really his his faithfulness that David is drawing attention to here. David's remembering God's covenantal faithfulness. That's what's driving this prayer. David remembering the covenant promises that God has made. It's the same kind of prayer that Moses made when he said, God, are you just going to let us die out here in the wilderness? The people back in Egypt are going to think, oh, what kind of a God is this? Both of them, David and Moses, they're, they're drawing God's character into their minds. They're remembering God's faithfulness. They're remembering the covenant promises of God. 
And they're remembering their desire for God's glory to shine before all the nations as God remains steadfastly faithful to his covenant promises. As Charles Spurgeon said in preaching the psalm, he said, quote, It is well for us that our salvation and God's honor are so intimately connected that they stand or fall together. End quote. So when we feel abandoned and forgotten and forsaken and our minds are, are prone to wander and to start doubting and, and asking questions, that's the time for turning our minds away from the questions that our emotions and our heart would have us ask and turning them to the promises instead, turning our ears to the promises instead that God has made. Because the temptation is always to seek comfort and well-being in something other than God. Even when you're not going through a trial, that is the temptation that every single one of us faces every day to find our, our, our hope, to find our comfort, to find our well-being in something other than God. That's the flesh nature. And God is faithful. God is faithful. But the temptation is stronger than ever when we feel like God's far away when we feel like God isn't present with us, when we feel like God has forgotten us and forsaken us. So the first thing to do is turn in faith to God in prayer. Secondly, as you do that, remember his covenant promises. James 4.8 is, is a wonderful promise. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's something that we need to understand. God is immovable. God is immutable, meaning he does not change. So if we find ourselves feeling distant from God, it's not because God has gone anywhere. It's because something about us has wandered away from God. But James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13, that's another one when you're being tempted says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? These are all dealing with God's unchanging faithfulness to his people. These things are antithetical. They are the very opposite of what our hearts and what our feelings would be likely to tell us. So what are you going to believe? You've got your heart and your feelings saying one thing. You've got God's word saying the very opposite. What are you going to believe? Which has more credibility? Your feelings or the very word of God? I'll give you a hint to the answer. Man, it is not even close. They're not even in the same universe. When it comes to your feelings or the Word of God, the Word of God is infinitely more reliable than your heart. More reliable, infinitely more reliable than your feelings, which are prone to change for any number of reasons from one moment to the next. I mean, it can be your circumstances. It can be hormones. It can be anything. Anything can change you from one moment to the next. If you are in Christ and you feel forgotten, you feel abandoned, you feel forsaken by God, don't listen to your heart. Ignore your feelings. Consciously remind yourself that your feelings are constantly lying to you, that your heart is constantly misleading you. And pray. Pray remembering that God loves you, that his love for you is unchanging. And in no unclear terms, God has promised that he would never leave nor forsake his people. Remember that Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And so as David prays and he pleads with God in faith, he finds assurance. He finds peace. He, he regains confidence because of what he knows about God's character. That when it comes to God's faithfulness being tested, 
God will always prove to be faithful to his covenant promises. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, he says, But, that's the contrast, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with, bountifully with me. So David says, but he's turning. He's turned. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. Note the tense there. That's, that's kind of a pa- that's past tense, right? I have trusted. And it mo- as it moves through these two verses, it moves to the future, forward. I will. So I have trusted in your loving kindness. The, the, the word in the original Hebrew text for loving kindness is one that we've seen several times in our study of the Psalms. The word is chesed. Uh, that word refers to the, the faithful covenantal love of God that he has for his people throughout the ages. Uh, understanding the implications of chesed, of, of this word, gives comfort to our grieving hearts when we feel like God is far away. The implications of this word, it, it carries with it the implication that God is constantly and eternally unwavering in his commitment to those he has set, upon, has set his love upon in eternity past, to those he has called according to his purposes. Because of David's confidence in God's covenantal faithfulness to his people, David looks from the past to the future. And he says, my heart shall or will rejoice in your salvation. Now what does he mean by salvation here? By the way, when you see the word salvation in the text, you always want to ask yourself, in what, tense, in what sense is this speaking of salvation? Because there are lots of senses uh, that the Bible speaks of salvation. In this context, salvation refers not only to our justification, that is not only of our being saved from the penalty of sin, but it also looks forward to the day when we dwell in the presence of God forever. I mean, it's great, it's amazing and wonderful to remember that our sins are forgotten, but we have to remember that salvation includes more than just being forgiven. It includes more than just the the penalty of sin being removed from us. We're not only free from the penalty of sin, we've been freed from the power of sin. Now, in the here and now, we're, we're being freed from that power. We're breaking away from the power of sin in our lives through the working of the Holy Spirit in us. And one day we will be free, not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but one day we'll also be free from the presence of sin. See, if it were not for God's hesed, his his loving kindness, we could not say with even the smallest degree of confidence or assurance that we will rejoice in his salvation. See, if our salvation depended on our faithfulness, We may as well just eat, drink, and be merry because this life will be as good as it gets because we are by nature prone to unfaithfulness constantly. How depressing is that, that this could be the best that things get for us? And yet for those who have not put their trust for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is true for you. That this life is as good as it gets. But as Christians, we love you enough to warn you of that reality and to plead with you to be reconciled to God by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation so that this life will not be the best that you will ever experience. But just like you and me today, David had yet to receive what God had promised, at least to receive it in full. He'd he'd had some, he'd, he'd experienced uh, the, 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 the joy of knowing that the penalty of his sin has, had been paid, that had been taken care of. He had to look forward to the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the same sense that you and I have to look forward to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And this, looking to the future, looking to what God has promised will come. This is where we find our joy, by setting our minds not on our circumstances now, not on the way things are right here and right now, but on what God has promised for what is to come. 
and remembering that God is faithful. So Psalm 13 is not only David's pathway back to the light. It's not only our pathway back to recovering the comfort and joy of having a sense of God's presence, but it was also Christ's experience. Even though he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The author of Hebrews tells us also that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus set his hope not on what was going on in the, in the present moment, the fact that God had crushed him by burying him under our sin. He, he didn't set his, his hope and his sight on his current circumstances. He set his hope on what was to come. That's where the joy was, what was to come. And we must do the same. Now here's the thing. God might not change your circumstances when you're in a trial. It might be your lot. It might be your portion for the rest of your life. But he has promised for the future something better, something far, far better, far more glorious than even the best circumstances that you've ever had in your life on this side of glory. If your life is good, guess what? God has promised something better. If your life is fantastic, it pales in comparison comparison to what God has promised. And if your life is filled with hardships and sorrow, how much sweeter will it be to receive the fulfillment of those promises of God? Buckle up. Hold on. It can be a bumpy ride, but know that the day is coming when we'll look back And see and understand how bountifully, how graciously God has dealt with us all along. Even even in the darkest valleys of life. Even in the longest trials that we endure. So if or when you feel like God has abandoned you, if you feel like he's forgotten you or turned away from you or forsaken you, I can't answer the question of how long that feeling will persist But what I can tell you is that you're not alone and that those who have gone before you, David, the Lord Jesus Christ, countless others throughout history, they have left a clear path for us to take when we feel the same way. Turn your mind away from yourself, away from your circumstances, and turn your mind to God. Cry out to him in prayer and find comfort in remembering who he is, his character, and what he has promised. Friends, for his people, God has not promised that this life will be easy. In fact, he's warned us that this life will be filled with trials and hardships. God hasn't promised that this life will be easy, but he has promised that he loves his own, that he will be with us and for us through the journey, and that he will be faithful to finish the work that he began in us. And we should set our hopes on that. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for the experiences that not only David experienced, but the grief and the sorrow that we are told in your word Christ himself experienced. We thank you for it because it shows us that we're not alone. It shows us that what we experience when we're in the valleys is common to man. That everybody goes through ups and downs. But this psalm, this, your word here, Lord, it reminds us of who you are. It reminds us of your faithfulness. It reminds us of your great love for us. It reminds us that our feelings lie to us, that our feelings and our hearts contradict what your word says, and it reminds us to turn away from what our hearts and feelings might be telling us and to find our comfort in what you have promised. 
We thank you, Lord, for being a faithful God who hears us, who hears us from even the deepest depths of any valley. Father, for those of us who struggle with depression and anxiety, we pray for a renewed sense of your presence with us. We pray for a deeper understanding, a deeper trust, a deeper, deeper love for your faithfulness, that we would turn to you instead of to ourselves, instead of the counsel that our own hearts might give us, and to find comfort and joy in what you've promised, what we believe is to come, because we believe that you are faithful under your purposes. And may Christ be glorified in that. May he be glorified in our lives as we find contentment even in the darkest, deepest valleys of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.